1: your normal filmically perfect on 91.3 WYSO. That signals the beginning of a very special show. And first I'll tell you, I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio today by the storyboard artist to all the big stars and a great animator in his own way. Also, uh, one of our film guys, he's J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome.
0: I wish I could say that I've... Did animation storyboards, but I've always been live action and I have nothing but admiration for those animators who do storyboards because they, they're they pretty spectacular guys. But you are
2: personally very
0: animated. It's true. Yeah, but <laughs> if only somebody would erase me and take me away. That
1: second voice and uh, the largest frame brain in the world, he is our man at the Library of Congress, the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress, and our friend, George Williman.
2: Hello, all you happy people.
1: <laughs> we come together today for a very special, filmically perfect. A
0: very special, very, very <laughs> special, filmically perfect.
1: To play, to pay tribute to one of the men, one of the animators who gave us some of the more memorable, moving images, certainly of our young lives, and maybe even as adults as well.
2: And I would say, as far as the animation world is concerned, probably one of the best known figures in animation after Walt Disney.
1: And gentlemen, um, who is that?
2: This would be Chuck Jones,
0: otherwise known as Charles M.
2: Jones.
1: Charles M. Jones and Chuck Jones who gave us among others a couple we're going to take a, a very special look at today are a couple of his uh, Looney Tunes mm-hmm. cartoons that have Actually, been... I
2: believe they're merry melodies but
1: Oh, is that right?
2: That's splitty, splitting hairs. After oh. we take a quick review,
1: oh. <laughs> will you uh, remind us of that difference, as a matter of fact? But before we go... There are people that take this
0: very, very serious. Uh, they're fans of Chuck Jones that... Uh, mm would instantly, instantly, you know, point that out. The
1: fact that I said Looney Tunes and it's Merry Melodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just yeah. George.
0: There's a lot of people out there are very, very particular about that work.
1: Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. Well, we'll find out about that, but let's first remind our listeners that the reason that we gather here uh, together on Film of the Perfect visualize is... some sort
0: of Thanksgiving or <laughs> Indians around a campfire.
1: Uh, a
2: great we can sing, we can sing. <laughs> we gather together to, to watch some great movies. Yeah.
1: <laughs> gentlemen, these movies are perfect in every way, and this is not just willy-nilly. This is not just haphazard. You don't just think these up in your daydreaming moments. These are very strict rules that uh, allow a movie to arrive to us as perfect. And gentlemen, what are those rules?
0: Well, these two animated uh, cartoons from Warner Brothers, uh, they both create the world that they exist in.
2: And they wholly sustain that world.
0: And regardless of changes in society, these two cartoons retain their meaning and entertainment
2: value. And they will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. Each cartoon is perfect within its own scale. They're all... Baby, is it in its
0: own scale? All
1: number ones. And Warner
0: Brothers really set the scale for these cartoons. They really did. In, in a time that's long gone by, but these cartoons are still very popular.
1: I can attest to that fact that they were made, up uh, many of them in the early and middle 30s. So we're talking... Uh, approaching 80 years later now and my children think they are just top notch. Well,
0: the ones we're looking at today aren't quite that old. Right, they're um, from the 50s. Yeah. And this is probably the end of the era of the studio cartoon, which was around seven minutes, right? Yep. Yeah. And this is what they played before movies back in the old days. Uh, you would get a cartoon or a studio short or something like that. And, uh, a little appetizer the last, before the meal. Yeah, this is the last vestige of that truth in animation. Uh, and these are some of the best, man. These are... They're still chugging... They didn't have a budget for it anymore at Warner's, but... They were still kicking out some mighty fine work, uh, as these two cartoons will attest to today.
1: So we've chosen two among the many. I mean, it's in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animated uh, works that he produced, correct?
2: Right. And these, these two are are unique, I think. Um, at least one of them, I am pre- and maybe even both of them, I don't recall right now. But I know at least one of them is on the National Registry uh, mm. of, of Films uh, put together by the Library of Congress. And um, they both, I think, show uh, Chuck Jones at his best, uh, what he was really good at, uh, character, character design, and just flat out funny. I mean, a cartoon that is truly uh, laughter-provoking pr- comedy. Uh, the first one we want to take a look at is the, the incredibly mean-spirited uh, but wonderful uh, One Froggy Evening. Um this one was done in the mid fifties and it features a, a car a character that actually only appeared in this cartoon, uh, who was given the name Michigan J Frog. And, and
0: wasn't he didn't he become the the symbol of the WB Network? Yes yeah. he did. They Ooh. were they
2: resurrected him for the WB Network and he would come dancing across the screen during the interstitials <laughs> between the programs.
1: <laughs> so let's take a listen. A little excerpt from Find that Projector. Yeah, there it is. Oh, oh hey. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Send me a
0: kiss by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire. If you refuse me, honey, you lose me. Then you'll be left alone. Oh, baby, telephone and tell me I'm your own. (laughs) What you're seeing there is uh, is. This this man finds a time capsule and he opens it up and there's a frog in there and the frog does a rivet and then he bats his eyes a couple of times and the frog starts dancing you know and uh, the thing is is this frog only only sings and dances for him for, for him, him. If,
2: if anyone else if anyone else and he goes to great up. lengths to show off
0: the talent of this frog only to get. What's classical, you know? It has a pie in the face kind of gag, although you don't see it. I mean, he, he does. It keeps getting more elaborate, and more elaborate, and uh...
2: and his life keeps going down and down and down until he is. Basically, sitting freezing on a park bench in Central Park while this frog sings opera next to him. <laughs>
1: Just goes on and on and on yeah. and on and on. Will not stop singing. And he's tried. When he first saw the frog in the box and he busted out in song, he got he got dollar signs.
2: The dollar signs. He was going to make a fortune on the frog.
1: <laughs> he would never. to him he, all around.
0: Hey, hey, he, he buys a theater and he puts down all his life savings. And they do this very cleverly through animation. You know, there's not... Any dialogue, that's right. Except for the frog singing, only, and he does it through facial expressions, like two beats of an eye. Uh, He looked so many times; these little characters look right into the camera, and uh, you know they do everything but wink. Uh, (laughs) And and every time he takes it, he steps it up. You know that the, the frog's singing they raise a the curtain you know and he struggles to raise a curtain because the frog keeps singing And of course the when he does raise the curtain the frog they, they throw them like, ve- throw vegetables at him
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's ribbit and there he sits it's like a limp thing he tries to get it to dance and it has this like beautiful sort of there's a joke isn't there a joke that that has uh, that may even predate this this uh, this cartoon that has to do with that. You know, the guy walks into a bar and he's got a... Oh, yeah, know. there's
2: many of them, the talking dog joke, or right. talking parrot. You know, the, the guy who buys his, his elderly parents a talking parrot and when he gets there, <laughs> they, they ask him how the parrot is, and they oh, we ate him, you know, and they're like, what? That parrot could speak four different languages, and they're like, well, why didn't he say something? <laughs> you know, so...
1: So it's a notion yeah. that's like uh, exists. Well, they the always comedy cut escape. when the frog does
0: his little rivet. It's always this one lockdown shot. And as George <laughs> pointed out when they raise the curtain. And he does his rivet for all this audience. There's this big, long shadow long behind, shadow, behind yeah. him. It's like, it's just doom, you know, that we
2: laugh at all the way.
1: But it is beautifully done. And uh, and Chuck Jones was uh, the the brilliant behind well, it.
2: He's the director. Now, now, interestingly enough, the gentleman who wrote the story, Michael Maltese, if you begin to watch a lot of these Chuck Jones cartoons from the 50s, it, Maltese and Jones sort of became a team. Because the next one that we talk about also, which which I'll give you a heads up, is Duck Amuck.
0: Almost all of them that we like seem to be written it's by this written man, by who's Michael very...
2: Maltese, and I, I honestly don't know a whole lot about him. I need to read more it's about him very because unsung. he's unsung, and he has the most twisted sense of humor <laughs> of anyone I've seen. I, I mean, the, the, where the ideas for these things come from? The like I said the. The beauty and simplicity of yeah, one froggy evening is story, man. It is. It just it just plays so beautifully, and a lot of people find some of these things, uh, you know, kind of mean spirited. But and and in some ways they are. We, but also
0: we also enjoy that part of
2: it too. Apparently. And this one is sort of like it's it's the follies and foibles of mankind. You know, it, you know, this guy he sees this amazing frog. What's the first thing he thinks of? Is he's gonna make money, money. off of it? You know, and again the sort of the sort of circular notion of this whole story at the end of the story it starts right back at the beginning and it never ends so there's you know i'm sure we can work that into some uh some if, if you
1: when you go out james to james
2: joyce thing <laughs> right when you go out to buy, if you go out and
0: buy a set of chuck jones there's a lot of stuff that he's done you know of grandchild stole christmas all these look for this one because we think this one's very special you know because years ago george and i met chuck jones at wright state university and he played these cartoons for us the ones that we're doing today and uh, if you look at these cartoons very closely, you can tell that, you know, Warners is running out of money for that department. And you'll notice the skill that's you know, he has as a director, every time there's action through a certain part of the frame, that – part is, has got more embellishment with ink and pencil. Uh, it's very much stronger in color. There's a little doorway in there, and you'll see just the woodwork around the doorway has a little bit more shadow than the rest of the picture. And what happens is people run through there. So Chuck Jones is like a master of putting your eye where it belongs for the joke to happen. I mean, that's, most of it is, is his technique as a visual artist. He is able to plant composition in the right place so that when the, when the shoe drops, you're going to be there to see it. But not until he's ready for you to go there. And it's, it's more than editing. It's more moving your eye around the animated kind of picture. And he does that better than anybody because you can tell that these things that are running out of money. They're not
2: as expensive. They're very, very uh... – I, I, I'm thinking actually they were as expensive, but you're right. I mean budgets were being cut. Television was killing, the, especially shorts. And I'm sure Warner Brothers was telling them to tighten up. And and Chuck Jones having uh, – during, during and just following World War II – had worked a lot with Stephen Bisostro and some of the guys who started UPA – who became sort of the the bellwether for limited animation, stylish limited animation with with like Mister Magoo series and the
1: where uh, just, this is just a few parts of the image would right move. And, and,
2: oh yeah they, they very very linear stuff yeah very you know? and, and Chuck Jones took on that and his is actually a little fancier than UPA's but there definitely is a lot of that echoed in this one and
0: he overwhelms it with style I mean that's what he that's something that he knows how to do more than anybody else style and vocals style and action some of my favorite things to see is some of the movement in there they'll use some you can see some of the streaks from the colored pencils they used in there.
2: Well and also one of his greatest things is is he began to really look into uh the emotions in expression, facial expressions. His characters emote through facial inspections more than any other cartoon director I've ever seen. And if you look at the
0: man, you'll swear they look like him.
2: You know, there are, yes, there are. There's at least
0: swear they look like him.
2: There are a few times. I believe it is. There is one called Long Haired Hair, where uh, Bugs Bunny torments this kind of chubby opera singer, who I believe is a caricature of Chuck Jones. <laughs> and really?
0: Bugs Bunny, as he progressed, he started looking
2: more like Chuck
1: Jones. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that was actually such just a, like, he didn't the even eyebrows. realize he was doing it, or do you think that oh, was no, intentional? No, the, the,
2: the, the camaraderie at the studio was very, very close, and there are several books. Chuck Jones himself has written at least two books on their times at Warner Brothers, and to read these stories, it was, it was an absolute madhouse. They've talked several times about doing a feature-length film about this studio, which was lovingly referred to as Termite Terrace, but the film has, so far as I know, has never gotten off the ground.
0: And like most other Warner Brothers products of the day, they sounded like Warner Brothers products. They had the sound, they had the brass band, and they had the fabulous— The,
2: the Warner Brothers Orchestra.
0: Yeah, the, but they had oh. the—I was, was trying to set up a fanfare for our buddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. The one and only Mel Blanc. Without yes. Mel Blanc— the cartoons had, were never the same. They nope. never sounded the same. They never looked the same. Mel Blanc did all these inflections. Listen to this guy's control. Man, That's he right. could sing. He could do anything.
1: Didn't and he do all the voices except for a very early uh, Elmer Fudd? Yeah, was Elmer done
2: Fudd by someone was, else. An, was another actor. And then he also took over Elmer Fudd after that actor passed away. But let's speaking of Mel Blanc, let's jump right and into here's this some next, Mel Blanc next uh, piece here. <laughs>
0: Humiliated in all my life! Look, Mac, just what's going on around here? Let's get organized, hmm? How about some scenery? (laughs) That's dandy. Ho ho, that's rich, I'll say. Now, how about some color, stupid? Hey! (laughs) Not me, you swap artist! Well, where's the rest of me? It isn't as though I haven't lived up to my contract, goodness knows. And goodness knows it isn't as though I haven't kept myself trim, goodness knows. I- I've done that. That's strange. All of a sudden, I don't quite feel like myself. Oh, I feel all right, and yet I. I. Uh... Hey! You know better than
1: that! <laughs> And all the while, the the animation is becoming more and more well. It's just playful. There's so much going on there.
2: Well, this is from a, a cartoon that that Jones did around 1951 called Duck Amuck, and it basically, the beauty of this cartoon is it's a cartoon about cartoons and about the creating or decreating of a cartoon character, and and it stars the one and only Daffy Duck, who is just probably one of Warner Brothers' most brilliant, out-of-control characters. And in this one, for those of you who haven't seen it, and I can't believe anyone out there who hasn't seen this, but basically Daffy starts out in sort of a, a, a swashbuckling cartoon and quickly runs out of background. The background just kind of fades, fades away as he moves along. And the rest of the cartoon is basically him fighting with the animator to get a background and proper costuming, and the animator just continually... You know, removes the background from him or drops him into the water or does something horrible. <laughs> like the scene we just heard, he like, redraws his body as some bizarre four legged key- creature with a flower head. And
1: <laughs> you know better than and
2: that. And the <laughs> animator is never heard. Uh, it's just this brush
0: that comes in. <laughs>
1: Or an eraser. eraser.
0: I can really relate to this cartoon, believe me, because I have a little power eraser, and I say I'm inventing a power eraser that I I just erase people and get rid of them. And I always think of this cartoon when, when somebody's telling me what to do and they're annoying me, this director, I just want to take my eraser and go... And just wipe them out. Just like on this... This cartoon, but to, only that's not one of my favorite directors. Only the directors that I. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're listening to Filmically Perfect on ninety one three WYSO, and this is indeed a very special edition of the shows. We pay tribute to, really, in some ways. Um, A perfect storm of talent that came together to make some of these early shorts. Uh, Of course, Chuck Jones uh, produced many of these. But as we were mentioning, you know, Mel Blanc and... uh, He had a
0: team of guys, a real close team of guys. On these,
2: In fact, on these, there's there's, uh, Chuck Jones directing, Mel Blanc doing voices. Uh, Carl Stalling, uh, who was the music music guy who uh, had started out live as a silent... Uh, film accompanist, so it had a huge uh, encyclopedic understanding of music and emotion. And when you hear these spikes of
0: music and everything, this is the character emoting, you know, when you hear that. And it's timed perfectly. Everything has been—it's not like today. It's really hard to believe that they did this stuff on on film, pencil test. Uh, everything was analog. Mel Blanc supposedly went in and ripped and read read this stuff in a couple tries.
1: And did they do did he, do you know, uh, do it to the already present animation or did no. they animate to his voice?
2: They would animate to his voice, they would do the soundtrack first, and then they would create what they called exposure sheets that would tell the animator, Okay, in this by this second you need to have Daffy saying or doing this action. Now on this cartoon it'd be really, really hard because a lot of times there's nothing going on. You know, there's nothing on the screen or there's only part of Daffy on the screen. So it'd been really interesting <laughs> watching them put together these soundtracks. And they actually put them together in little chunks. There are two wonderful CDs out of Carl Stalling's music, and some of the tracks on there are actually unedited takes that they have found from Warner Brothers Library where you hear them doing the music, but it's just a little chunk of it. They'd say, you know, here's, you know, uh, Pussy Putty Tat Trouble Part 6, and they'll just play a little da 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 And then they'll just do it over and over again until they get it right. And then when they did the picture, what they did is they would what they called a pencil
0: test and that's where they roughed the character in you know almost a storyboard would be a little bit more accurate and that pencil test they would sew it together in, in sheets and you would flip these sheets and you could see back then the animator would peel up the sheet and draw another one and they could flip them like a flip book it was called a pencil test and that pencil thing they could sync it up to the you know, the music and once they got that pencil test right then they went over to uh, animation where they did ink and paint um, and, and they were very, very precise about getting their colors straight. Uh, back then they would have a paint center, and then every all the artists um, would paint around that, and they'd bring it up and get their paint mixed by this person who mixed the, the colors, so it would be all be accurate. Wow. And these were called cells, and everything else is, everything's digital now, but for years and years and years and years, they did it this way. And the Warners did all this incredible action, with the most archaic conditions that you could ever dream of for animation and
1: it's so beautiful and even today it is in fact it's even more beautiful today because unless they're doing digital animation d- animation became so sort of shoddy and cheap the stuff that you would get as the normal Saturday morning fair was so jerky that you know it seems like the fluidity is at least still present in these early ones but I guess that's what they were aiming for well Chuck for. Jones
0: had a patent on that action I mean not a literal patent but uh, you could <laughs> say oh that's Jones man because because he was the director and it had to, like, his stuff moved completely right. different. You know, all those animators' time, you could always spot Chuck Jones' work. You
1: know? What was his, I mean, how did he find himself? I mean, again, this whole perfect storm that all these people came together at these studios and that the music and the sound and the image was all present and so just top-notch. I wonder um, how it was that he... Uh, Fell into that. He fell into that. Well, from what I understand, uh, he started
2: out as a cell washer at the UPA work studio in the 30s, and this this is one of the reasons why a lot of cells don't survive from that time is because the celluloid was expensive. Uh, the cell the celluloid used in the 30s for cartoons was actually nitrate celluloid, so the cells actually were the flammable nitrate film stock. In big sheets, like they they were shooting the movies on, uh, but since it was expensive, once the cartoon was done, they'd send the cells down to the washer, and and he would wash the ink would off of the cell,
1: that?
2: and they would use them over again. Um, now they oh, That's
1: just so sad. Well, they stopped doing
2: it later on. I mean, Disney still has some cells from some of the Silly Symphonies and from from Snow White and some of the other films. But, yeah, a lot of the early ones, no cells survived because they used them a second or third time.
1: So that was his job to erase (laughs) literally what we see in Duck Mud, the erasing.
2: And then after that, he went over (laughs) to Warner Brothers in the mid-30s, and I'm not actually sure how he got his first directing job. His early cartoons are nothing like his later ones. They are very sort of standard uh, early Warner Brothers, like cute animals, and I think he did some Sniffles cartoons and stuff like no, that. Sniffles. But, but as it goes on, and with the oncome of the war and the creation of Bugs Bunny, 39 seems to be about the time this goes, he becomes one of those main ones that starts developing the sort of really wacky, you know, archetypical Warner Brothers characters and animation. And by the time you get to the late 40s and the early 50s, when these cartoons are made, he is very developed. And he's also... He's also in such a position at Warner Brothers that they allow him to do a lot of a lot of standalone or one-off cartoons like One Froggy Evening, um, and there are a lot of other ones where he has you know maybe a cartoon that has a character in it once or maybe he did like two cartoons for a certain character.
1: His like one of his those... high
0: water marks is Bugs Bunny and Road Runner, uh, the Roadrunner and Coyote thing. Now the Coyote looks very much like Chuck Jones.
1: <laughs> I'm beginning to think you're Tell pulling me my, my wrong. leg. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, he has his eyebrows <laughs> and when I, you know,
0: I've heard that from more than one person that he cuz he 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 identified with the with the characters that really got it. And he said that there's a little bit of Daffy Duck in all of us. That's what he said. And there's a little bit of Coyote in all of us because that's what we feel like what's happening to us and on a day-to-day basis that we can't, no matter, you know, when I was a little kid, I watched those Roadrunner cartoons, and I think, well, that was a pretty good invention. Why don't you try and do it again? And I'll bet you succeed. But he never did. It was always one. It, they, he was tormented constantly by different inventions, and, and a Coyote would always lose. And <laughs> the time-honored Chuck Jones shot is where... The coyote went off the ledge and went, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then, and then yeah. you saw the little puff of smoke. That is Chuck Jones in a nutshell right there. <laughs> what he's, he's saying what we are. We're very I, finite. <laughs> you know?
2: I, I think one of the most telling comments he made, and the one that always sticks in my mind from his visit to us at Wright State, was someone asked him you know, who he made these cartoons for, what was his audience. And he said, oh, he said, I only made these cartoons for me.
1: Aww.
2: Yeah, he was he was very clear
0: clear about not making them for children.
2: Not made for children, yeah. he said. I made them for me.
0: And you yeah. know, a lot of this nowadays there's a lot of culture and cartoons and stuff that's for adults. And back in the 40s and 50s, it was for kids. But he was very clear about that. This mm-hmm. is an adult medium, you know. And he was very very adamant about these were not made for children. These were made. They, they had no intentions of showing any movies to children. that had these cartoons in front of them. They were almost like. Well, they're not porn. They were very adult. Yeah. Well, years, I mean, yeah. Because they have violence in them. They have very, very... Years
2: later, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, when he worked very closely with Dr. Seuss on the TV specials, then, yes, those become more... Uh, kid-oriented. And you can tell because they they are not, you know, they're a little simpler.
1: And I I want you to clarify one thing, but I'll Mm -hmm. remind, uh, this is Filmicle Perfect, a very special edition on 91.3 WY So as we sort of take a look at the legendary animator Chuck Jones, and I want you to tell me, uh, you have a a lovely story about a letter that you got from him, but first, Mm -hmm. can we clarify the difference between Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies?
2: Yeah, uh, um, Warner Brothers, in their earliest days, they created Two series of cartoons. They had one series that was called Looney Tunes. They had the other one was called Merry Melodies. And I, I'm trying to remember. They both started very, very close to each other. The,
1: the Merry Melodies seem older to me. Seem like the, like those early Porky Pigs were all Merry Melodies. Right, although I might and be actually,
2: wrong. at first, there really wasn't a whole lot of differentiation. Although I'm thinking now that maybe Merry Melodies were more standalone cartoons, whereas Looney Tunes became more of a series where they would have a reoccurring character, you know, in the cartoons over and over again. But the big change came when I believe the Merry Melodies became the color series in the early 30s, and Looney Tunes remained the black and white series until well into the 40s. And then, of course, by the 50s, they'd gone all color, and they just had these two series running.
0: You know, in this uh, Duck Amuck, one of the my favorite sections of this, and, and I can— this is what my business feels like so many times when I'm doing these movies is there's a scene here where he jumps out of an airplane and they draw a parachute for him, his hand, you know, he's got a parachute. <laughs> and then he's, he feels all secure and then he looks up and the artist comes in the animator and puts an anvil instead of it and made. then of course he goes clean to the ground and then he's he's like off his rocker and he's hitting a hammer and then the artist draws a bullet shell with a, oh. like an explosive top on it and he hits that. I'm like, that's the world. That's the world of motion pictures, right
1: there. You know? We are almost out of time, gentlemen. Can just for fun, quickly uh, oh, tell the, us he yes. didn't have time to sign when, your book. When
2: we went to see when we went to see Chuck Jones, he, he showed seventeen cartoons, and and he had to go. But he said he said I'm sorry, I don't have time to sign autographs. But if you will write to me, I will write back to you. And he handed out these little cards. And so I wrote to him, and sure enough, a few weeks later, this this brown envelope from Chuck Jones production came back. Opened up this beautiful stationery with. With the Roadrunner and the coyote chasing each other, and this wonderful letter from him in pencil about it. And I, I will actually post that on our Filmically Perfect website so everyone can see it. It's a really neat memento from uh, Chuck
1: Jones so not only uh, a great animator but a great guy it would seem yes we
2: certainly were thrilled to meet him
1: Uh, we are almost out of time do check that out at perfectmovie.net you can write to the film guys and I hope you will filmguys at perfectmovie.net you can find archived episodes of the show at perfectmovie.net or at wyso.org you can check us at npr.org it is good to be riding again with the film guys gentlemen until next time Uh that's all folks
0: thank you for listening to an archival episode of filmically perfect please keep an ear out for new episodes of filmically perfect Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you,
2: please.